Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Kellen, about six weeks ago, you and I did our first episode in this subseries, which we've kind of titled the Why We're Wrong, or So They Say subseries. And it seems like we got a ton of positive feedback on that episode. It was actually our most listened to episode, like within the first 30 days. People seemed really intrigued by the idea of hearing why we're wrong, or so they say. Yeah, and I don't know that we really care that much about how many people listen within the first 30 days, but it's some level of an indicator that people are finding value from this type of conversation. And I'm pleasantly surprised because, you know, we were a little bit worried that everyone would immediately stop listening to that last episode, that they would say, oh, they're going to talk about all these counter arguments to this one aspect of collapse. I don't want to hear about that. I hear about that all the time. And yet I think going through it methodically and saying, here are all the reasons why people say resource depletion isn't something we need to worry about. And then discussing each one of those and calling out the parts of it that were valid, you know, arguing against the parts of it that seem to be a logical fallacy or seem to be less accurate or well thought out. I think doing that helps us not only gain a better understanding of the issue at hand, but it also helps us to better understand people on the other side and be better equipped to have conversations with them. Yeah, well said. And, uh, you know, the credit for that goes to you because you brought this idea to me for the subseries. And I was hesitant at first because of the reasons you just stated. But in the end, it seems like it is valuable to people. And so we're doing another one of those today. We're actually going to do a part one today and a part two next week. And we would love to hear your feedback on these. The feedback we received again so far has been positive, but if you have other feelings about these episodes, yeah, let us know. We always want to know what's working well and what's not. So this time we're focusing on why we're wrong, or so they say, about climate change, which is a hefty topic and is the primary reason that we're splitting this into two episodes. You know, we all have that one family member or friend who's very open about denying the science behind climate change. And that can be really frustrating because they can seem to bring arguments that are hard to argue against simply because they can say things like, you know, what their science is, or what the science they've seen is. And then you're getting into like, well, show me your source and I'll show you my source. And it just it's this argument that's difficult to have. But the people who are denying climate change and the ones who do so really adamantly are very hard to talk to about this because they're so set in their way, right? And we're so set in our beliefs because it's science that that conversation typically doesn't go very well. And just like in our last episode in this subseries, we are willing to be very open in looking at the arguments, at hearing what they're actually saying, trying to discover their reasoning and and their understanding, but behind why they're saying what they are. Like Kellen said, you know, some areas of some arguments may be correct. And we'll call that out if that's the case. But I'm not going to lie. This one is tough for me to be as sort of lenient on, I guess, because climate change is different for me than other collapse topics. Personally, it's harder for me to excuse climate change denialism than to excuse something like arguments against peak resources or a failing financial system. You know, with a financial system, for example, experts are all over the place on what they say is going to happen on the way that economics works, on the way that economies work. 
economics is complicated. There's all these different possible outcomes. And so it makes sense that there is so much conflict and confusion in that sphere. When it comes to climate change denial, though, like it's just ignoring science. You know, climate change is relatively simple. The science and the facts are pretty straightforward. And there is an overwhelming consensus among scientists that it's real. That being said, some of these arguments we've talked about are compelling, and so I will be open to discussing them, but forgive me if I tend to get a little more emotional in my responses because I am a bit more passionate about this topic than I was about peak resources. You know, it's interesting you say that, that on this particular issue, you're a little more willing to dig your heels in because of what you've seen and what you know, what you believe. For me, this is actually an issue that, you know, climate change wasn't something that I really had thought much about or cared much about or looked into before you talked to me more about it and introduced me to aspects of it on this podcast. So basically for the first few decades of my life, someone could ask me, what do you think about climate change? And I could just respond, flip a coin. Like, I don't know. I don't know which way it would land. If it's real, if it's not, if it's man-made, if it's not, if it's going to affect us or if it's not. And so I resonate a little more with the other side, not in agreeing with all the arguments against climate change, but at least in understanding and empathizing with people who aren't convinced that it's a real thing. And I will just say, this is an extremely controversial topic. It has been for decades now. Like there are very strong feelings for and against it. And so it's a weighty topic for that reason, but it's also a weighty topic when it comes to collapse, because we've said, hey, even if the financial system isn't as unsustainable as we've said, or the political problems, or the issues with social conflict, or resource depletion, or any of the other things that we've talked about, even if any of those or all of those really aren't as big of a problem as what we've said, climate change alone will result in collapse. So uh, so so it feels like this is a very weighty conversation because of how impactful climate change is and because of how controversial it is, how many opinions there are. There's so much to talk about here, which is why I think it's wise that we're splitting it into two episodes. Yeah, and I want to touch back on a point you just made, which was that you said you can empathize with people who aren't convinced. And I will admit that's different than the person I'm talking about, which is the denier, right? The person who says, no, you're wrong. And here's why. And they present their own reasons as to why, which are the reasons that we're going to talk about today. But you know, you five years ago, if someone had said, hey, how do you feel about climate change? You probably wouldn't have said, oh, it's bullcrap because this, 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 and this, like you said, you would have been more like, oh, flip a coin. I don't really know. Right. I've heard a couple things here. I've heard a couple things there. And I think that's how a lot of people are. And I I was that way in the past as well. You know, we grew up in a conservative area where we were kind of just brought up to to think that it was baloney. I was never given any specific reasons why. No one ever told me here's the science about why they're wrong. It was just like making fun of Al Gore. You know, that that was pretty much it. But now having learned about the science. And like you said, I can empathize with people who don't know much about it. But what sets me off is the people who are adamantly trying to shoot down the science of what it is, because they're the ones that make people not be convinced, right? We should have near 100% acceptance that climate change is human caused and real all over the planet. But just because there's someone claiming that they have the scientific authority to declare that it's not happening gives reason for doubt. And is one of the main reasons that we're not seeing necessary change in order to mitigate it. And that makes me angry. And what you've just mentioned there, I think is really important because there's a full spectrum here. There's there's extremes on either side. There's people who are adamantly denying it. And there's also people who are claiming that climate change is way more intense and extreme than it really is, right? They're are some who are saying like, we're all going to die within the next 10 years because of climate change. And the fact that we have those extremes sometimes pushes people away from listening to what's actually reasonable. And, and that's part of why I feel like it's so important for us to have this conversation and hear kind of both sides. But when it comes to those different responses and the variety of responses that people have to climate change, Corey, I know you've been really fascinated with a movie that's come out recently. I haven't watched it. You've watched it a couple of times. It's called Don't Look Up. 
And in fact, we did a whole bonus episode discussing it and and I got to hear a lot of your thoughts about it. But from my understanding, you feel like that movie is very pertinent to what we're talking about here today. Is that correct? Yeah. The movie Don't Look Up has been a big discussion ever since it came out on Christmas Eve Um, in the Collapse community. It's been all over the subreddit. It seems like people really resonated with this movie. They really loved it. And I am one of those people. I watched it twice and plan to watch it again. I just feel like for me personally, it validated a lot of the things that I feel being a collapseware person. And it perfectly sort of describes the reasons that we have so many people denying climate change or being apathetic to it. There's so much nuance to the film that, by the way, critics hated. But I think the people who really got this movie, who really understood it, are the people who listen to podcasts like this, are the people who take the time to understand what's happening and who feel the frustration of watching the world continue to engage in bread and circuses and ignore the issues completely. Yeah, it's been interesting for me to see kind of as an outside perspective, somebody who hasn't watched the movie, I've just seen what people have said about the movie. And here you've got a very star-studded film. It's such a loaded cast with big actors and actresses. And it has been marketed and publicized. You know, I saw trailers for it in the weeks before it came out. There's been so much hype around this film in a very mainstream way. And yet at the same time, you've got these critics who are saying that it's very political or critics feel like it's very demeaning to the viewer, that it's just calling everybody an idiot. Those who are critiquing this film seem to have this general feeling that it somehow missed the mark, that it wasn't worth all the hype that it was given before its release. Yeah, honestly, I love that critics hated this movie. Like, it makes me happy. If if critics would have loved the film, I think it would have turned me off a little bit. There's just something so beautifully ironic about it all. The, the film itself is making fun of the bread and circuses, and specifically the circuses that critics are engaged in, devoting their lives to critiquing films you know, and the critics hated that. And I feel like, and I said this in the, in the bonus episode, but you either loved or you hated this movie. And if you hated the movie, it's because you didn't get it or you did get it, but you were one of the people that was being called out in the film. And I feel like this film called out a large percentage of the population in showing how they would react if a planet killing comet was headed toward earth. And for some people watching this film, I'm sure they were thinking like, Okay, this is so unrealistic. This is this is not how people would react. And I think they think that way because in every other disaster movie they've ever seen, the president immediately dispatches, you know, puts all their effort into saving the world and, and everything's done correctly. But you look at the real world, you look at climate change, you look at COVID-19, you look at all of the misinformation and disinformation out there, and you see how significant portions of the population react to those things. And suddenly, the ridiculousness of this movie and the way that people react doesn't seem so far-fetched. As a matter of fact, it might seem underdone. You know, there's a movie that I saw several years ago, and it is a very different movie from the one we're talking about. It's a children's movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's called The Lorax, and it's based off of Dr. Seuss's book. And I saw that movie before I really learned a whole lot about climate change. But at least at the time, I don't know how I would rate the movie now if I were to watch it today. But when I watched it several years ago, you know, it's really extreme. It seems to be shaming everybody and everything about our modern lifestyle. And the big evil villain wants to bottle clean air and make a profit off of that while killing all the innocent plants and animals. And at the time, I remember just thinking, this is so heavy handed. Like it's so over the top, kind of like, give it a rest. Like, yes, there are issues, but I don't need a guilt trip from a children's movie. I felt like I was being preached to. And maybe, like I said, I would watch it today and feel very differently about it. Maybe I'd feel like that kid's movie had the exact tone that it should have. But I wonder if people watching Don't Look Up feel that way. If they have this sense, this feeling like, okay, we get it. Quit trying to guilt and shame me. And I'm sure that they do feel that way. 
And I think that's why it got so many of the bad reviews that it did. But just like in the movie, you know, you tell someone that they have six months until a comet is going to completely annihilate the human population. And when the reaction, as depicted in the movie by many people, is you're lying, stop telling me that's happening, don't look up, it mirrors the reaction that people give to these movies. Again, it's just this funny irony of the producers knowing very well the reaction they were going to get from their movie, and they portrayed that reaction in the movie to the people warning about the comet. If you're unaware of Don't Look Up, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't really heard about it, you don't know what it's alluding to, it's a very thinly veiled allegory to climate change. In the movie, we're talking about a planet-killing comet. In real life, we're talking about planet-killing climate change. And there are other comparisons that I think can fairly be made from the movie as well, especially in regards to the way they talk about misinformation and disinformation, you know, things like COVID-19, even the 2020 election fraud, all those types of things, you can make connections that way as well. But I think the main one here is more of a very collapse focused, we are all going to die if we do not immediately agree on what's happening and make changes necessary to prevent it. So I think what I'll do here is I'm going to give a quick synopsis. I kind of started it there, but I'm going to continue with it. And we're going to talk about a couple scenes from the movie. If you haven't seen it yet and you plan on watching it and you don't want spoilers, please skip the next few minutes. I'll try and remember to go back in the in the notes of the episode so that you can see at what minute to go to. Um, if you'd like to skip the spoilers. But basically, you've got these two amateur astronomers who discover this comet that's headed towards Earth and is going to destroy it. Once they make that discovery, they immediately try and leap into action to tell the proper authorities in order to prevent it from happening, right? They go, they meet with the president of the United States, who basically just brushes them off and says, we're just going to wait and see what happens. She is very clearly concerned about the midterms, about getting reelected, which is something that we've talked about a lot in the podcast around one of the main reasons why the necessary changes to prevent collapse or prevent climate change are not happening. And it is that it would surely result in either not being elected if they're the promises you're making before election and uh, not being reelected and likely being impeached if you were to make those changes during your term. And that goes for president or any leader anywhere in the world. It is simply not popular to you know scare people, be dramatic, or make the economic sacrifices hurting people's pocketbooks that would be required to, to make this happen. And again, there are so many little things, little nuances in this film that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip just because we don't have time. But I love the little details in there that, that just remind me so much of being collapse aware. Well, after the president sends them away and says, we're just going to sit on this and wait and see what happens. They try and go on this media tour. They're trying to warn people about it. They go on this talk show where the co-hosts are just trying to keep things so light. They are you know, talking to Ariana Grande in the segment before, and they're laughing and they're talking about celebrity culture and, and all of these circuses. And then on come these astronomers. It's Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, who are warning about this planet killer comet that is going to hit the earth in six months. And one of the co-hosts makes this joke about how can we please like make sure that it hits my ex-wife's house, right? And Jennifer Lawrence just blows up and she's like, dude, we're talking about a freaking comet that is going to kill everyone on this planet and everybody should be freaking scared. You should cry every night fearing for your life because of what's about to happen. And she ends up being just like lambasted for this. She gets memes made about her. She's made fun of all over social media. She goes viral for being over dramatic. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Kellen, about how there are people who take it too far. And in, in this case, Jennifer Lawrence was telling the truth of exactly what was going to happen. But in the collapse community, there are people who over exaggerate and say things like, we're going to have a BOE in five years. And once that happens, everybody's dead. You know, the clathrate gun hypothesis is going to kill us all by 2050. The, these really bold claims that really can't be backed up. Now, is there a chance that those things could happen? Yes. I'm not saying that they aren't possible, but it's not like we can say there's a 100% chance of it happening. We can say, though, that there is a 100% chance that if we continue business as usual, our planet will heat to two degrees above the baseline and, and much more than two degrees, which will make maintaining our current way of life impossible. And should heating continue, it will eventually make the Earth uninhabitable. We are talking about a comet that will destroy the Earth. 
one of the things that gets me is when they're talking to the president of the United States, the president is saying things like, all right, what's this going to cost me? What do I got to do to fix it? What's the ask here? What do you want from me? You know, she asks, what likelihood are we talking about this happening? And Leonardo DiCaprio says 100%. And she says, hey, 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 now nothing is certain. Nothing's 100%. And he goes, well, it's 99.78% to be precise. And Jonah Hill, who's the chief of staff, the president's son, and he's a complete doofus in the movie. He's like, oh, okay, so you're saying it's not it's not certain. So there's a chance that it won't happen. And they're just going out of their minds like 99.78% chance. Well, eventually the president calls them back in and says, look, we looked into it. We had our people check it out. And it turns out you're right. So here's what we're going to do. And she goes off on this big, elaborate, how can we make this look really good for us sort of plan, right? She's never concerned about the people. She's never scared about what could happen if the comet hits. It's how can I use this to make me look better and make sure that I get reelected? Anyway, sparing details, they launch everything. Nukes are getting launched to go and and blow this comet off course, and they abort the mission halfway through because they discover that there's money to be made from the comet. It's full of like $140 trillion worth of rare earth minerals. And now they've come up with some elaborate plan using unproven technology to bring that comet safely to earth, harvest those minerals, and saying things like, with this money, we can end world hunger. We can destroy all poverty. You know, we can completely fix things, which is just a huge sort of comparison to greenwashing, to geoengineering, to carbon capture, and all of these unproven technologies that are being thrown at us as these solutions that are that are going to save us. But really, in the end, what they are is something that's going to make rich people richer. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear what you're saying about this movie. And it's very timely to this conversation we're having now about counter arguments to climate change. It seems like such a great allegory or analogy or metaphor or whatever it is. Because if I'm understanding the way that you've described the movie accurately, the real threat is something that's invisible to everybody until it becomes imminent, right? Like in order for somebody to even know the threat exists and to believe it, they have to trust these scientists who have discovered it and who have done the research and the math and the science. And that seems like a great parallel to climate change because it is this invisible threat and understanding it as a threat is completely dependent on us trusting what scientists are saying about it, which gets really confusing when there are so many different voices out there, right? Even just trying to determine what kind of consensus there is in the scientific community around climate change can be a challenge. It seems pretty clear that there's general consensus around it, but you hear what some scientists are saying against it. You hear what politicians are saying for or against the idea of climate change and what needs to happen to prevent it and what the impacts will be. When there's thousands of different voices, I think it gets really challenging for the average person to have the mental and emotional energy to sort through all that, discover the truth and really care about it. Yeah, you know, there's this interesting moment in the film where it's like, okay, you've gone from having the astronomers on one side and the government on the other to now they've come together to solve the problem. But now the government has decided they have a different plan in order to make a whole ton of money. And by the way, it's not just the government that wants to make the money. There's this guy in there who's supposed to be like the Elon Musk Jeff Bezos type guy who who's actually the one who discovers there's all this minerals on there and it's his technology that they're going to use to bring it safely down. Anyway, so you have that moment. The protagonists here, our astronomers have to decide, are they going to stick with the government plan, which they're not 100% certain is feasible, or are they going to go out of their way to make a stink about it, basically? And Leonardo DiCaprio, at one point when he's challenged on that by Jennifer Lawrence and uh, uh, another guy in the film, he says, they hold all the power. Would you rather me be there being a rational voice going along with their plan or have them shut us down, basically? So he stays and he becomes like this sort of stooge delivering their message that everything's going to be fine and that don't worry, we're going to solve all the world's problems with all this money that we're going to make from it. Meanwhile, Jennifer Lawrence goes the other way and starts trying to talk down the government plan and she gets completely shut down. She gets basically locked away. She tries to go home to her own family. She knocks on the door and tries to go inside and the door is locked. And her mom and dad say, we don't need any more politics in this house. There's too much division in the world already. We don't need you to bring this political division. And she, you know, it hits so close to home because you see that all over 
We're taking a real issue, a real fact, and then the world is turning it into something political. They're making it about money. They're making it about all these things that it's not about. But that doesn't change the fact of what is actually happening. Just because we've made something political doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Jennifer Lawrence didn't do anything to make it political. She just spoke the truth. And yet her own parents turned against her because they viewed it from a political lens. It's really interesting the way that the movie then portrays how it's politicized because suddenly the president's having all these political rallies. And because there's this opposing force trying to say the science isn't sound for what they're trying to accomplish. And eventually Leonardo DiCaprio, the astronomer, leaves and says, I have serious doubts about this mission. They're not following the peer review process. They're firing the scientists who are working with me and just using their own scientists for this. I don't think that this is sound. I'm not confident it's going to work. And so now all of a sudden, because it's so politicized, you know, you've got the president holding these rallies. They start chanting, don't look up. They create this slogan. It's don't look up. You don't need to look up in the sky. It's not up there. Don't worry about it sort of thing. And then you've got the other side that's saying, just look up. That's kind of their slogan. You can see the comet in the sky. It's now visible to us all. Just look up. It's right there in front of your face. And, and the one party that, that refuses to even look up to believe that it's there. And that is kind of where, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about those people who aren't convinced and who can't be convinced necessarily. They've been told not to look up. You know, Don't look into the climate science. Don't research it. Instead, just believe us when we tell you that they're making this up. It's all a bunch of crap. They just want money. Whatever the argument is, don't look up. And there's one point during a, a political rally where you see all these guys in the crowd chanting, don't look up, don't look up. They've got their red, don't look up hats on. And one guy in the crowd looks up and goes, what the crap is that? And you just see the comment with this big tail behind it. And it's just so obvious what it is. And he gets everyone else around him to look up at it. And they all start booing and throwing bottles up at Jonah Hill, the chief of staff, who's given his speech. And it's that moment where everything turns and everyone realizes what's happening. And we're not there yet, right? In real life, we haven't hit a point where there is simply no denying it. I think we're getting to that point. I do think in real life, it will be a slightly different than in the movie. I think there will be people who will deny it until the very end. But there's another interesting part in the movie that I want to hurry and, and call out. And I won't go too into detail anymore. We'll, we'll finish up on this in a second. But there's a moment where Jennifer Lawrence is talking to Timothy Chalamet. They're, they're having this conversation. And Timothy Chalamet's friends are talking about all these things that they've heard and, and some sort of conspiracies about what the president's done. And, you know, they've paid Chile $100 billion to let the tidal wave hit them so that, you know, they can collect the the money off of the, the comet. And they've got an escape ship and, and all these different things. And Jennifer Lawrence says, they are not as smart as you give them credit for. And we see that kind of in the collapse community a lot. People are tempted to create these conspiracies and give elites all of this, you know, like they've got some big master plan. They don't. They want the $140 trillion and they are willing to just be as reckless as possible to, to get that. And it's not one person that's making that happen. It's a system. It's a system of we need to get richer at whatever cost it comes to everyone else. We need to make ourselves more wealthy. And I, I thought it was pertinent that Jennifer Lawrence calls that out there. And the last thing that I'll mention, and the part that I just felt like kind of struck me to the core was the end scene of the movie where the entire world is glued to their television sets watching what's about to happen. They want to know if the plan is going to work and if they're going to be saved or if it's going to fail. But our astronomers meet up, they go get some groceries, they go back and they mend Leonardo DiCaprio's relationship with his wife. And they say, hey, can we just come in and, and make dinner together? And, you know, there's probably like, I don't know, eight of them at this dinner table, eight to 10 of them, family and friends. And they sit down, they make this wonderful meal, they talk about simple things they talk about important things and it keeps switching back and forth between their conversation and then what's happening with the comet to showing clips of just life you see for a moment a baby cooing and then you see whales in the ocean and then you see hippos playing you know, and then it cuts back to their conversation, things that they're grateful for. They're talking about the things in their life that they're grateful for. Jennifer Lawrence just says, you know, I'm just grateful that we tried. Someone else says, 
And we really did try, didn't we? And then the comet makes impact with the Earth and it just shows as that shockwave starts to travel. And the graphics in the movie are great, by the way. Shows as the shockwave is traveling and then it goes back and cuts to more great things about life and, and nature and all these different things. And then it cuts back to their conversation. And as the table starts to shake, there's earthquakes happening. And Leonardo DiCaprio, he says, you know, we really did have it all, didn't we? When you think about it. And then in slow motion, you just watch the house explode. They're all, you know, and then it's just this rapid fireball and, and they're all dead. Um, but I think for collapseware people watching that, at least for me, it was just this feeling of like, we are trying so hard to talk about it, to cope with it, to help others cope with it, to help others learn about it so they understand what's happening. We're constantly being ridiculed. We're being made fun of. We're being ignored. You know, on this podcast, we're talking about one of the most important issues that anyone should be talking about. But they were able to, in the end, when everyone else was freaking out, losing their mind, glued to their televisions, it was those people who enjoyed the time they had left with each other, were grateful for it, and didn't need to see how, how it all ended. And it just reflects what we've talked about a lot here of just finding a way to enjoy life. It helps being collapsed aware helps you to see the value and, and appreciate what you have and the time you have and the people you have. And it brings sort of that odd sense of comfort amidst all the chaos. When it sounds like there's some really interesting irony there that early on, they're the ones freaking out, trying to get everyone to care while everyone else is calm. And then when stuff is really going down, everyone else is freaking out and they're the ones that are calm. It, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think it plays really well into kind of setting the foundation and the backdrop for us discussing all of the counter arguments that exist currently against climate change. You know, I hear the way that you describe those scenes from the movie, Corey, and I can just tell that you resonate so much with those main characters. And, you know, you're the one, you're kind of the astronomer that talked to me about this issue we're facing, well, this collection of issues that are threatening our way of life. So I'm, I'm grateful that I get to be on this side of it now and be on this journey with you. Yeah, it feels like every collapseware person is the astronomer, right, in their own life, because at some point you make the discovery for yourself. It's not like we're making the discovery for everybody. We're not making new discoveries, but it's new to us and it's new to our circle of influence. It's new to our families, to our friends. And it's not that we should go out there running around with our heads cut off, screaming that the comet's coming right? There's a tactful way to talk to people who are ready and willing to hear it. But the sense of loneliness that you felt in the main characters in the movie, that is really what, what resonated. And I think we can all sort of relate to that idea. Awesome. So with that fresh on our minds, I've got maybe 10 or 11 different counter arguments that people have when it comes to climate change. And what I'd like to do is step through these. We'll get through a few in this episode. We'll pick up the rest in the next episode. Some of them we'll spend more time on than others. But what I'd like to do is present with varying degrees of detail the reasons people feel like climate change either isn't real or isn't human caused or isn't going to impact us or we shouldn't care. And then, Corey, I'd like to have you share your thoughts in response to those uh, and any research you have at your fingertips to rebuttal any of those points or... You know, we can call out any of the reasons we feel like those points are valid. And I, I'm not going to go in any particular order here, but maybe let's just start with the most basic argument. And that's just saying the globe isn't actually warming. Climate change isn't happening. And oftentimes when people say that, hey, it's all just false, it's a hoax, we have nothing to worry about, it's not actually happening, they'll say things like, you know, the temperature has even been dropping in some places. Or like, look at how cold of a winter we're having. Clearly, there's not an issue here. So this, this is an argument that we hear less and less. Most people, it seems like now are saying like, yeah, it is a thing, but here's why it's not man-made or here's why we don't need to worry about it. But there still are a number of people out there who are saying, nope, it's not even real. The globe isn't warming. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it's getting, that's more and more of a fringe idea. And typically this argument that's made, what they're saying is true. Yeah, you know, it is a cold winter. 
or yeah, like there is this one place uh, in this geographically constrained area where the temperature has decreased this year over last year. But climate change is not does not mean that every day is hotter than the last. It doesn't mean that every single year is even hotter than the last year. We're not talking about a narrow geographic region or a short time frame. Climate change typically looks at things from a much longer time scale and it uses averages. And there is no denying that over time, the mean temperature of the earth is increasing. And I think, you know, if you're talking to someone who's bringing that point of data to you, I mean, just ask for the proof. You know, what what source do you have? What scientifically backed source do you have to show temperature changes over time that shows that the temperature has decreased from even just a hundred years ago to today. And I, I don't think they can show you one because they don't exist unless it's just like someone who made a fake graph, but that's all it would be. Well, and as I looked into it, just trying to understand this argument a little bit more, there was a cooling period from around 1940 to 1970. And, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't believe in climate change, it's really easy to point to that and say, hey, look, we get a few decades of things warming up, then we get a few decades of things cooling down, and it goes back and forth. It's nothing to worry about. I know that they have been able to, to tie that increased concentration of greenhouse gases, these these sulfate aerosols to the boost in industrialization after World War II. And then also this volcanic eruption, um, a volcano in Indonesia in 1963. And when there is a big volcanic eruption like that, you know, the particles remain in the stratosphere for a few years, and that can cool the Earth's surface during that time. So there's been specific reasons they've been able to point to for that cooling period. But I love what you're saying is, is it's too narrow to just look at one specific area or to look at a very short period of time. And I love the term, I can't remember who came up with it, but you've shared it with me a few times, uh, global weirding instead of saying global warming, because it just highlights that, yeah, as the mean temperature of the globe over this longer period of time is increasing, stuff is going up and down and left and right all over the place. We're going to see... Some places get colder, some places get warmer, some places get more rain, some places get less. So I think you've addressed that really well. Yeah, and to go even further into that that cooling period in the mid-20th century. So from the 1910s to the 1940s, there was a 0.35 Celsius increase in the mean temperature of the earth over that time period. Then in the 1940s and 1950s, it slightly dropped by 0.1 degrees Celsius. And then from the 1950s to around 2005, 2006, it increased another 0.55 degrees Celsius. So the net warming over that time period was around 0.75 degrees Celsius. And we know we've had an even sharper increase in temperature since then, almost doubling that number in just the last 15 years. But there was that one decade or two where it decreased by just 0.1 degrees Celsius and some climate change deniers will use that little period to say, oh, well, look, like it went down for a bit. So obviously we're not just going up. But how can you look at one point, almost 1.5 degrees Celsius increase now and say that because, you know, one time it went down 0.1 degree that, that, that that's any reason to believe that we're not continually warming overall? Yeah. And one thing to call out here, I think if you're having a conversation with somebody who makes this point and are saying, hey, we've had periods where things are cooling down and we've got areas where things have cooled down and we had the coldest winter ever, blah, blah, blah. I think it's perfectly reasonable to say you are absolutely right. And that's not the issue we're talking about. Like what we are talking about is something broader. It's a larger scale issue over the whole globe over an increased period of time. And to highlight what you're talking about, which is it's not linear. There are ups and downs along the way, but look over this longer period of time and you'll see that we are increasing at an alarming rate. Yeah, if you've ever watched like a stock ticker move throughout the day, it's moving up and down a hundred times, but you look at it over a month and there's a more clear trend, right? All those up and downs have smoothed out and you can see a more overall idea of what's actually happening with that, that line. And the same thing goes with global average temperatures. Another argument that's made is kind of what we've touched on already, which is 
there isn't consensus in the scientific community. Lots of scientists are against the idea of climate change. And, you know, as I looked into this, there, there's a website that I think is really insightful. Um, I had never seen it before. It's called procon.org. And they kind of go through a number of arguments and, and state it as pros and cons and say, here's the argument on one side, here's the argument on the other side. They mentioned there a report that found more than a thousand scientists who disagreed that humans are primarily responsible for global climate change. They said that the percentage of scientists who back the idea of climate change is much smaller than others claim. They say a, a Purdue University survey found that 47% of climatologists challenged the idea that humans are primarily responsible for climate change. And that report that I mentioned, I went and looked at it. The title of it is More Than 1,000 International Scientists Dissent Over Man-Made Global Warming Claims. Scientists Continue to Debunk Fading Consensus in 2008 and 2009 and 2010. So the report itself is more than a decade old. And I thought it was really interesting. They, they quote a bunch of scientists. They have statements, you know, where somebody will say the scientific method has been abandoned in this field, or the whole idea of anthropogenic global warming is completely unfounded. Or another statement that said, there is no evidence whatsoever that such a thing is happening. Another said, the whole thing is a fraud. I will point out as I looked at the individuals who are making these claims, you know, Dr. Christopher J. Cobus, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Oakland University. And I thought, okay, I guess that person's a scientist, but their field is mechanical engineering. To me, I thought that was interesting. Nobel Prize winning Stanford University physicist, Dr. Robert B. Laughlin, chemistry professor, or Dr. Mary Mumper, renowned engineer and aviation space pioneer, Bert Rutten, biologist, Pavel, South African astrophysicist. You know, I, I guess it was interesting to me that when they say there's a thousand scientists who are against climate change, who are claiming it's a fraud, their sample is, yeah, technically scientists, but I wouldn't say that they're experts in the field. You know, they say that the most convincing lie is one that has a kernel of the truth. And so you come out with something like this and you use the word scientists, right, which is the same word that the other studies are using. And so it sounds like they're asking the same people, right, or the same type of scientists. But like you said, you get into it and you find out they're asking, like, like you said, all these people who are not relevant in the field. So there's a couple of things to point out here. I also saw that claim on procon.org, which claims to be a nonpartisan website that's just giving the facts. Um, that was the only place that I could find anything that stated the consensus was anywhere even near less than 90% from scientists that climate change is real and that it's being caused by humans. Um, pretty much every single study that I found um, was somewhere between on the lowest end, 91%, and on the highest end, 100%. The average was right around 96 to 97% for scientific consensus. Now, there was a study done on the study that you just spoke about regarding those thousand scientists. And that study found that the ones who disagreed had substantially less climate experience than the 97% who did agree. It talked about this petition rejecting a consensus on climate change which garnered a lot of press attention with the proponents claiming they had collected thousands of signatures from scientists. But in truth, the signatories largely had training irrelevant to climate science, such as veterinary medicine or no scientific expertise at all. So it's like, yeah, if you, if you wanted to pay a bunch of veterinarians and astrophysicists and all these different people to say, yeah, climate change is bunk, you can do that. And then you have a powerful argument to say, hey, all these scientists are not agreeing with what you're saying. But when you look at the scientists who do have consensus, the ones who are actually studying the subject that we're talking about, which, by the way, is a funny parallel to something that happens in Don't Look Up. Um, there's a moment where Jennifer Lawrence is on a talk show. It's a political talk show. And she's actually the one that discovered the comet. And so it's named after her. And this politician says, well, why are we supposed to believe you on this comment? It's named after you. Isn't there a conflict of interest? Like basically saying that because it's got her name, she has a reason to push that it's real. It's like this 
cognitive dissonance where it's she was the one that found it, discovered it. Uh, of course, she has authority to speak on it. Um, you know, you might look at a, a climate scientist who's saying climate science is real and you could say something like, oh, well, of course you'd say it's real. It's job security for you. But who else would be in a better place, especially when such a consensus of them agree on it, you know, than the, than the person who's actually spending the time devoting their lives to finding out if this is real or not. Now, one comment I'll make as somebody who has a graduate degree is that holding a certain degree or title, it doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. <laughs> a lot of dumb people can have advanced degrees and they, they may be very smart in some areas or, or dedicated or good at schoolwork or determined or whatever. But I have seen a lot of people who, who go get a PhD in one field and suddenly they're the authority on everything, right? And, and we've kind of set up our culture that way to some degree where, where we give someone a piece of paper and say, hey, you've put in all this work. You know a lot of things that other people don't know. You're now the authority. And too often that goes too far uh, where, where somebody who is a biologist all of a sudden assumes that they know everything there is to know or that's worth knowing about climate change. And, and that's not bashing people who get degrees. That's just saying we have to be aware of our limitations and, and be willing to admit where we don't have expertise. For a really on-the-nose example of this, um, if you think back to COVID, when it first really started taking hold, there was a lot of discussions around what to do and how to treat it. Um, there was this small number of doctors that were willing to stand up and basically just boldly state incorrect things, right? And they were put up in front of crowds to say what people wanted to hear. Um, it doesn't matter that this smaller group may only represent that 3%. They're loud and they're telling a certain group of people what that group wants to hear. During COVID, you may remember there was one doctor in particular that was basically endorsed by the president of the United States. He shared her, her videos and information, tweeted about it. Donald Trump Jr. declared one of her videos as a must watch. And she was basically just up there pushing hydroxychloroquine, but she had all these red flags. Um, some of her other beliefs that she frequently talked about were that cysts or endometriosis was caused because women were having sexy time in their dreams with demons and witches. She claimed that the government was using alien DNA to create vaccines that would stop people from being religious. And she also believed that the government was partly made of reptilian creatures rather than human. This video had tens of millions of views. And because she had doctor in front of her name, people who wanted to believe what she was saying were willing to believe it and share it widely. And it did a lot of damage for disinformation at the beginning of the pandemic that still lives on today. Yeah, that's such a great example. And I know we've talked about logical fallacies in the past. And, and we've also talked about persuasion and ethos, pathos, logos, and, and how a major aspect of an argument has to do with somebody's credibility. You know, you can't just say that somebody's argument is credible simply because of who that person is or who they're not. You can't say, well, this person's a doctor. So that automatically guarantees that what they say is going to be truth, even on a subject that they're a specialist in. And on the flip side, if somebody is not an expert, they're not a doctor, that doesn't mean that what they're saying can't stand as a sound argument. But it, it is interesting when people use this argument around, hey, there's not consensus in the scientific community, which in reality there is consensus, you know, with a, a small minority who don't agree, but we do have to be really careful about the way that we look at somebody in a lab coat making a statement and, and taking that as gospel. Um, you know, that Purdue University survey, they said they found 47% of climatologists challenged the idea that humans are primarily responsible for climate change. And I, I didn't look too deep into that one. I did think, oh, that's interesting because they're actually climatologists. That goes very much against what I've heard elsewhere, which is almost all climatologists are supportive of the notion of, of human-caused climate change. But then it's interesting because even in that same statement, it says, and instead believe that climate change is caused by an equal combination of humans and the environment. And that was another 37%, right? So I think we 
we would all say, yeah, climate change is caused by humans and the environment. And whether you say it's equal or whether you say humans are primarily responsible, like those individuals aren't denying that humans are playing a major part in climate change. It's just what what percentage or what ratio. This brings up a really important point. And I noticed the same thing about that Purdue survey. It's the way that information is presented. It's the wording that's used. You know, you hear all the time about how stats can be manipulated to say what you want them to say. You have to be really wary of the way that data is presented. And that's exactly what's happening here in my eyes. To reiterate, 47% of climatologists challenge the idea that humans are primarily responsible for climate change and instead believe that climate change is caused by an equal combination of humans and the environment. In the end, they're saying in that Purdue University that 90% of scientists believe that climate change is caused at least in part by humans. They're just adding in these discrepancies about what percentage of it is being caused by humans and what percentage of it is being caused by the environment itself. But when you look at the basic of the question, um, really, it comes down to only 5% of scientists that said that there was not enough information to say whether or not humans were involved at all. And another 5% that said that it was mostly by the environment. But the other 90% said, yeah, this is humans. So those numbers really aren't far at all from the consensus that we found in everything else. Yeah. So I think this argument doesn't hold a lot of water. You know, when I look into the numbers, I can't remember the percentages, but I think there's a greater consensus that humans are causing or accelerating climate change than there is that smoking causes lung cancer. And yet that one, you know, we treat as fact. I think we need to trust the science that's there and understand that there truly is a majority a vast majority of qualified scientists who are backing climate change. And just to prove that Don't Look Up really did touch on it all, um, one of the main reasons for the misinformation in that movie about the comet is that a scientist, as a matter of fact, it was the head of NASA, claimed that the science behind this all was pretty unsound and and unlikely to happen. She called it more doom porn or something like that. And they they point out, Leonardo DiCaprio points out that, yes, she's the head of NASA, but she's also loyal to the president of the United States. And her degree was in something completely, completely unrelated, exactly as we just mentioned. Okay, so we've talked a lot about just two of the 10 or 11 counter arguments to climate change. I think we've laid a good foundation. I love that you, Corey, talked about don't look up and all the parallels and and all the ways that that so accurately depicts the the range of responses and, and the issue in getting everyone on the same page with this. We'll end this episode here. And in our next episode, we'll talk about all the other counter arguments and why, according to some, we're wrong about climate change. 